Judgment. The word sounds so condescending, so narrow, so biting, maybe even cruel. And our culture says, hey, who are you to judge me? You do you and I'll do me. And it's almost to the point where the word judgment has become a decaffeinated term. So that we can't see love and judgment coexisting, fitting together. And so when it comes to God, and and we talk about a God of love, we really struggle sometimes with the concept of talking about him as judge. But that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is love. That statement is in the Bible. God is love. But the Bible also says God is just. And true justice demands judgment. Now, all of us want judgment to some extent. Someone breaks into your house and robs you, maybe physically harms one of your family members. Do you want justice? Absolutely. Every bone in your body will scream for judgment. Our courtrooms are full of people who want judgment because they feel like they've been wronged or maybe they're the victim of a crime. And, you know, TV courtroom shows are still pretty popular, aren't they? What, there's People's Court, Hot Bench, Judge Joe Brown, Judge Mathis, Judge Judy, and now I guess even Steve Harvey is trying his hand of it. I haven't seen it. I've seen it advertised. That ought to be interesting, huh? You know, all of us inside of us have a sense of justice. Um, You've probably heard a kid scream, that's not fair. You don't have to teach them to say that, do you? That's inside of them. Now, I'm not always saying our sense of justice is accurate. I'm just saying we have it. Just suppose you get up one morning and you're headed to work, you're driving down the road, it's going to be a good day, you know, you have the radio on, you're listening to music, you got your cup of coffee, minding your own business, when all of a sudden, out of nowhere, you look in your rearview mirror and some guy comes flying up on you and starts riding your bumper and you mumble under your breath, that jack wagon. (laughs) Probably something else, but we won't say those words in church. And you look down at your speedometer, and you're not only going the speed limit, you're going five miles an hour over the speed limit. And he continues to ride your bumper. And you're getting angrier by the minute. Finally, a minute or so down the road, he gets an opening. He goes flying around you. And when he does, he gives you a one-fingered wave. (laughs) So not are you already angry and frustrated. You're incensed that he would flip you off when you didn't do anything wrong. Well... You try to calm down and settle back down as you're driving down the road. And about two minutes later, you look ahead of you and you see flashing lights. And when you get close, you look. And a police officer has pulled over the jack wagon. (laughs) Now what happens? Suddenly all this frustration and anger that you had has turned to pure Joy. For once in your life, you saw justice happen right before your own eyes. 
So you turn up the music a little louder, you know, and you're bouncing now on your way to work. I mean, all is right in the world. The next morning, your alarm doesn't go off. You don't get up on time. You finally wake up and realize you've got to get going. You're going to be late for work. You rush around the house. You hop in your car. You go flying out the door. You know you're going to be late. You go flying down the road. When once you know, you come upon someone who's going so slow, some jack wagon in front of you. So you get up on their bumper <laughs> to try to ease them oh, a little bit. Um, I mean, they're barely going the speed limit, maybe five miles per hour over. What's wrong with them? you got to get to work. So when you get an opening, you go around them and you pass them. You're a couple minutes further down the road flying along when you see flashing lights in your rear view mirror. (laughs) Police officer pulls you over, comes up to the car and asks you what your hurry is and you tell him, I'm late for work. My alarm didn't go off. I overslept. I'm just trying to get to work, officer. He takes your license registration, goes, checks it out. And while you're sitting there, you are praying for mercy. You're praying that he's having a good day. And you're thinking thoughts like, you know, there are murders and robbers out there. Doesn't this cop have anything better to do with his time than just to pull over a guy who's late for work? Now, what happened? What happened from yesterday to today? Yesterday, you wanted justice. Today, you want mercy. What changed? Well, you changed. Depends on which side of the law you're on. By the way, the outcome to that story, I'll let you decide whether or not he gave you a ticket, all right? I want to propose to you this morning that we live by a double standard. The standard that we judge ourselves by and the standard we judge everybody else by. Justice, though, says you get, we get what we deserve. You do the crime, you do the time. Now, Here's what we need to understand about God. He is a just God. However, that's not all God is. He's also a loving, merciful, good God. So that can sometimes create some tension for us. But God made a way. He sent Jesus into the world to pay the price for our sins. Jesus took our place on the cross when he died for us. That satisfied God's justice. Why did he send Jesus to take our place? Because he loves us to show us mercy. Wow, you internalize that, and that is amazing stuff, isn't it? But not everyone will accept God's gift of salvation through Jesus. And because God is just, judgment must take place. He can't turn a blind eye. He must make wrong right. The judgment of God is painted some 600 times on the canvas of our Bible. It's clearly a reality, and it does not conflict with his love in any way. The Bible says that one day God's going to do an audit. It's actually part of the prophetic message of the Bible. And the book of Revelation, which is our study right now, talks much, it tells us much of what's going to take place. Today... 
as we've already seen the last two weeks in the book of Revelation, we're going to continue to talk about God's judgment. Now, we're going to focus on chapter 17, 18, and just the first part of chapter 19 from the book of Revelation today. The key that unlocks our understanding to these chapters is really to ask and answer three important questions. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the question, when do these events take place? What is Babylon? And who is the bride? You'll see that as we go along. The first question, though, is when do these events take place? What we're reading about today takes place near the end of the tribulation time period. The tribulation is a seven-year time period when God pours out his judgment on the earth. And God's motive isn't just to punish people or to get even with them. It's actually to bring them to repentance. Now, there are three sets of seven judgments during the tribulation, the seals, the trumpets, and bulls. If you've been here the last two weeks, you've heard two weeks, you've heard about those. Adam talked about them. In chapter 16, Adam covered that last week, we read about the bull judgment. I think some of the most chilling verses in the Bible come from Revelation 16, where it says that God will send judgment on the people of the earth, and yet rather than repent, they curse God. You read that over and over again in Revelation chapter 16. One example. Check it out. They cursed the name of God who had control over all these plagues. They did not repent of their sins and turn to God and give Him glory. Wow. As we near the end of the book of Revelation, um, we're coming to the completion of God's judgment, which will lead us into the final judgment where he renders justice, makes everything right, and we go into eternity. And if you're a follower of Jesus, four followers of Jesus, eternity means with God in a new heaven and new earth. For those who reject him, it's the lake of fire. You know, sometimes the visual helps. If your mind's beginning to swim a little bit with what I'm saying this morning, um, sometimes a visual helps. So what I want to do, I'm going to actually just draw a timeline of, um, it's basically future events as um, much of this comes from the book of Revelation and other parts of the Bible. Let me just say too that uh, there are a lot of good Bible scholars who love Jesus who hold a little different view than this which is fine. The reason I hold this view in terms of a timeline is simply because I really think this makes the most logical sense out of what the Bible says. And actually, you can take the book of Revelation and you can plug it in to this timeline chronologically. But I'm going to start at the cross where Jesus died for us. And then the time period we are in right now, the present age, we use a term, we just call it the church age. The reason we call it that is because God, through Jesus, is calling a church to himself. And by church, we don't mean a building. We don't just mean this church. We mean all believers, all followers of Jesus for all time are coming together as a church. Now, in the Bible, the next prophetic or future event that is described is something called, and maybe you've heard this term, the rapture. This is an event, and the reason I drew it like I did with the arrows like I did is because 
The Bible describes, and by the way, I don't have time to go into all the Bible verses of everything I'm going to say. Um, I'm just going to hit the highlights. For example, the rapture is described in detail in places like 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 1 Corinthians 15. It's amazing to read that. But Jesus will come in the clouds, in the air, and everyone who's a follower of Jesus on earth, the Bible says, will meet him in the clouds, in the air. That's the rapture. That's going to be that next event that happens when that church age reaches its final stage. Then that ushers in at some point after that, we don't know exactly when, a seven-year time period that we refer to as the tribulation. This is when God pours out his judgments on the earth, and this is what we've been talking about in the book of Revelation. By the way, if you're a follower of Jesus, once that rapture happens, it's all good for you from that point on. In fact, if you were here a few weeks ago when we were looking at Revelation chapter 4 and 5 and we talked about that amazing worship to God and worthy is the Lamb, that will happen at some point after that. After the tribulation then, Jesus comes back to earth. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you will be with him for that. He will return to earth. And then a thousand-year period follows. That's described. This is described in Revelation 19 and Revelation chapter 20. It describes this thousand-year time period. We just call it the millennium for obvious reasons because that word means a thousand. After that time, and Jesus will reign on the earth during that time period. After that are described the final judgments in the Bible. And then there's a new heaven and earth. Those who are followers of Jesus will spend eternity with God there. And then also those who reject Jesus are will spend eternity in hell. Now, this is a timeline of future events. Like I said, much of the book of Revelation can be plugged into this. What we're going to talk about today is this part right here. I think in the first service I said, here's where we are today when I said that, and I confused some people. What I meant by that is that's not where we are in terms of the time period. I meant that's where we are in the book of Revelation today. This is the where we are, what we're going to look at from the book of Revelation. So if you see somebody from the first service this week, and they're walking around with this confused look on their face, would you let them set them straight, tell them what uh, that is really all about? Okay, so that's the first question. When will these events take place? And the second one is this, what is Babylon? Now, this next section that we're going to talk about, this is kind of heavy stuff. So I'm going to ask you to do me a favor. Put your thinking cap on, all right? Stay with me. And I don't even know if we use that term, thinking cap, anymore. I'm an old guy. I heard it when I was growing up. You probably know what I mean. So put your thinking caps on for this. Babylon is mentioned seven times in the book of Revelation and five times in chapter 17 and 18 alone. But Babylon is actually mentioned 343 times in the first half of the Bible, the Old Testament. Every time Babylon is mentioned It's in opposition to God. Babylon, of course, was a great world empire in the history of the nation of Israel. God used the nation of Babylon to judge Israel, or technically Judah, when they refused to repent, despite the warnings of prophets over and over again. Babylon was an enemy of Israel in the Old Testament, and the 
nation of Babylon refused to worship God. So Babylon, when you come to the book of Revelation, in the future is a picture of satanic forces in rebellion against God. And chapter 17 talks about the religious system that opposes God called Babylon. Chapter 18 talks about the commercial or economic system that is in opposition to God. During the tribulation, the Bible infers that there may be a one-world religion and a one-world economy. Um, When I was a kid and growing up, I would hear Bible teachers explain the book of Revelation, and they would talk about at some point, way out there in the future, based on what the book of Revelation says, there could be like a one-world religion and a one-world economy. At the time, that seemed so far out of reach. Fast forward 50 years, and it doesn't, does it? I mean, we live in a global society. Many factors have contributed to that, none more so than, of course, the Internet. So it's not too hard for us today to see a one-world system at all, but it will oppose God. So let's see what happens. Remember I said stay with me for this? Um, We're going to start by looking at Revelation 17, the religious Babylon destroyed. In the Bible, unfaithfulness to God is often described like unfaithfulness in marriage. The word adultery is even used. Babylon represents those who oppose God, and they're described like a prostitute. In other words, they're unfaithful to God. And in this case, it's actually religion that is in opposition to God. And when we think of religion, we often think of churches and everything that goes along with that. The Bible would have a bit of a broader definition. Anything or anyone who opposes God is considered part of this religious system. Again, the book of Revelation is using symbolic language to describe all of this. Keep that in mind. I'm going to start reading Revelation 17, verse 1. One of the seven angels who had poured out the seven bowls, that was the the judgments we looked at last week, came over and spoke to me. Come with me, he said, and I will show you the judgment that is going to come on the great prostitute who rules over many waters. The kings of the world have committed adultery with her, and the kings who belong to this world have been made drunk by the wine of her immorality. A mysterious name was written on her forehead, Babylon the Great, mother of all prostitutes and obscenities in the world. I could see that she was drunk, drunk with the blood of God's holy people who were witnesses for Jesus. I stared at her in complete amazement. And when it says drunk with the blood of God's holy people, that's just a reference to persecution of Christians during this seven-year time period, the tribulation. Anyone who is a believer who chooses to follow Jesus who accepts Jesus during the tribulation will be persecuted and or killed. It just shows how the forces of evil are almost unchecked at that point. Now, based on what we read in previous chapters of Revelation and what we read in other parts of the Bible, there will be a one-world religion. The Antichrist, or the beast, Adam already said that term Antichrist is never really used in the book of Revelation, but... The beast is how the book of Revelation describes him, will unite 
early on in the tribulation with the one world religious system and will eventually then turn on it, oppose it, and destroy it. That's what's being described in verses 15 through 18. It says, Then the angel said to me, The waters where the prostitute is ruling represent masses of people of every nation and language. The scarlet beast and his ten horns all hate the prostitute. They will strip her naked, eat her flesh, and burn her remains with fire. For God has put a plan into their minds, a plan that will carry out his purposes. They will agree to give their authority to the scarlet beast, and so the words of God will be fulfilled. And this woman you saw in your vision represents the great city that rules over the kings of the world. When you read about horns in the book of Revelation or even in prophecy, and here we read about the ten horns of the beast, that just refers to rulers. And it says that they will strip her naked. That simply means that they will just strip her of all her influence and power. Listen closely. God sometimes uses the forces of evil to judge evil. And that's what he's doing here, using the beast to judge Babylon. You still with me? Okay, there will be also apparently a one world economic system at that time. And it too will be in opposition to God. Chapter 18 describes the fall of this one world economic system and economic Babylon is destroyed. At the beginning of the tribulation, remember the seven year time period, the Antichrist or the beast will perhaps sign a peace treaty with Israel, and there'll be world peace. You can read about this in some verses in the Bible that infer this, and you read about it in Revelation 2. There will appear to be peace and unity in the world because there'll be a one-world religious system, a one-world economy. But all this is in opposition to God and will eventually be destroyed. And that'll lead us to the second coming of Christ when Jesus returns. That's chapter 19, when Jesus comes to make everything right. But first, let's look at chapter 18. I'm going to start reading right at the beginning of the chapter. After all this, I saw another angel come down from heaven with great authority. The earth grew bright with his splendor. He gave a mighty shout, Babylon has fallen. That great city is fallen. She has become a home for demons. She is a hideout for every foul spirit, a hideout for every foul vulture and every foul and dreadful animal. For all the nations have fallen because of the wine of her passionate immorality. The kings of the world have committed, there we go. The kings of the world have committed adultery with her because of her desires for extravagant luxury. The merchants of the world have grown rich. That's a reference to this one world economic system. But it's in opposition to God, so it will be destroyed. Now, here are verses 17 to 20. We continue reading. In a single moment, all the wealth of the city is gone. And all the captains of the merchant ships and their passengers and sailors and crews will stand at a distance. They will cry out as they watch the smoke ascend. And they will say, where is there another city as great as this? They will weep and throw dust on their heads to show their grief. And they will cry out, how terrible, how terrible for that great city. Again, Babylon. The ships and owners became wealthy by transporting her great wealth on the seas. In a single moment, it is all gone. Rejoice over her fate, O heaven and people of God and apostles and prophets, for at last God has judged her for your 
sakes. Here's what it's describing. During the tribulation time period, all the forces of evil will run rampant. They oppose God. And even though he sends judgment to serve as a warning, people and evil forces still refuse to repent. It's all building to a boiling point. And we reach that boiling point in Revelation 19 when Jesus returns to earth. There will be no other solution other than for Jesus to return, to come back. Evil will be out of control. If, if you think it's bad now, it will be exponentially worse during the tribulation. Thank God, if you're a believer, that you will not be on the earth for this. But Jesus has to right the wrong. All the warnings and the judgments of judgments have fallen on deaf ears. Well, if you're still with me, it's time to turn a corner. It's time for the news to get better. There is hope. And actually, that's a theme of the book of Revelation, that there is hope in Jesus. You know, you've heard Adam say that the last couple weeks where he said, in the end, Jesus wins. So let's go on to that third question. It is, who is the bride? Hallelujah. You've heard that word before, right? It's actually a Hebrew word. We just borrow it in English. It literally means praise the Lord. So if you've ever said or you've ever sung that word, hallelujah, if, whether you knew it or not, you were speaking Hebrew. Um, who knows? Maybe that will actually be the language of heaven. The only time that word occurs in the New Testament, occurs many times in the Old Testament, the only time it occurs in the New Testament is Revelation 19. It occurs four times in the first six verses. And interestingly, the context is praise and worship to God because of judgment. Jesus is coming back. So it's praise to God that Jesus is going to return. But it's in the context of him rendering justice to make all things right. And we often don't think of worshiping God because he's righteous and will execute judgment. But it's coming. And Revelation 19 serves as the climax for the tribulation and for the book of Revelation. In other words, Jesus returns to earth. When he does, all his followers, all of Jesus' followers, if you're a follower of Jesus, we will be with him when he returns to earth. So here's the scene, Revelation 19, verses 1 and 2. After this, I heard what sounded like a vast crowd in heaven shouting, Praise the Lord. That's the word hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. His judgments are true and just. He has punished the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. He has avenged the murder of his servants. You've probably heard of the hallelujah chorus. It's obviously from the Messiah by Handel. And it's based on Revelation 19, what we're reading now. And it celebrates Jesus' return. All believers of all time will now be together. They'll return with Christ. Old Testament believers, believers from the church, believers who have trusted in Christ, have followed Christ during the tribulation. And there may be millions or even billions of people who will do that during the tribulation time period. We will all be with Jesus. And, you know, we read this in other parts of the New Testament that 
the church, that's followers of Jesus, is called the bride of Christ. You read that like in Ephesians 5. So what is happening in Revelation 19 is a picture of a marriage between the church, all believers, and Jesus. The church is his bride. And the wedding takes place right before Jesus comes back to earth. So let's read about it. This is Revelation 19, verse 9. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. That's Jesus. And he added, these are, the, these are true words that come from God. So the book of Revelation is beginning to turn a corner now. Now Revelation is getting excited. Not only are we get, beginning to see what awaits us in the future, we're going to see how Jesus makes everything right. And if you're tired of evil and injustice in our world today, just know that it's coming to a point when all things will be made right. And let me just set the table for where we're going to start next week in Revelation 19.11. Because next week it's going to talk about a rider on a white horse who is faithful and true. That's Jesus. And he's coming to judge. When I spoke in June, um, about three weeks ago, I talked about Jesus as a lamb. That was the predominant theme, that he will be worshipped as a lamb. We sang about that earlier, worthy is the lamb. But now he's called a lion, and it's the lion we're going to see when he returns on that white horse. He's coming to wage war. You know, sometimes we... May picture Jesus as this tender, loving, almost grandpa-like person. And don't misunderstand. He is loving. He gave up his life for us. But when you read about how he's portrayed in Revelation 19, he's a lion. And those in opposition to God will be judged. So let's conclude this. Three things for us to consider. First of all, God is just. He will make all things right. All accounts are not settled today, but they will be. Next, God's justice calls us to repent. If you have never repented of your sin and accepted Jesus' sacrifice for you, I would plead with you to do that today. And if you are already a follower of Jesus, it's a call to holy living. He took all of our sins on himself on the cross. How could we do anything else but live a holy life? And finally, thank God that he is just. Have you ever thanked God, even worshipped him? Because he will make all things right. There are times where we see injustice and evil in our world and we long for justice, don't we? Let's thank him that he is a just and righteous God. I'd like to close in prayer. God, I thank you so much that you are a God of love. You are love. And never was that on display more than it was at the cross when Jesus died for us.
But God, I also thank you that you are a just God and that you will make all things right. That you will right all the wrongs. And we thank you for that. We worship you for that. That you are a God who is holy, just, love, so far beyond us. And my prayer today is that each one of us will understand this. And if there's someone here who has never trusted in Jesus, accepted Him, surrendered their life to Him and followed Him, that they would do that even today. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus, we want to take just these next few minutes and worship you for who you are. In Jesus, it's in your name I pray. Amen.